Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with ECS DNA Kit by Endo Canna Health. I did this years ago and it continues to empower me to get nerdy with my cannabis choices, which you know I like. If you've watched our Cannabis Legalization News podcast, did you know that right now you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com? That's E-N-D-O-D-N-A.com and use promo code POD25. That is P-O-D, the number two, the number five. Your purchase includes the EndoDNA Collection Kit. Endo decoded report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestion, endo aligned product matching in your state, suggested dosage guidelines, and optimum methods of administration. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a BOGO offer on their Afeka soft gels lineup. Since so many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afeka Unwind created to support healthy sleep cycles using a patented proprietary formula of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are made of this. So buy one, get one, my friend. You can shop online at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at checkout to save 25% on your DNA test kit. What's up, everyone? It's 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. I'm producer Lauren, and today we're joined by Arizona cannabis lawyer Tom Dean. We'll be touching on everything from Arizona's current medical marijuana policy, the ballot initiatives they have in the works for 2020, and how to open a dispensary in Arizona. So you're going to want to hang around for Tom's segment. In the next few weeks, we'll be having more activists, lawyers, and policymakers on the show to talk about the cannabis policy they're trying to pass in their state or country. So make sure you subscribe and hit the bell notification to get updates about those upcoming episodes. But for now, Tom and special guest host Josh Kincaid of The Talking Hedge will be covering the cannabis news of this week on... Well, that was, wasn't that great? I tell you, Lauren, uh, wonderful work on that. And, you know, Josh, thanks so much for coming and guest hosting while Miggy is on uh, sabbatical. Yeah, no problem. Well, you know, it's been a week here in Illinois. We had some huge news. Uh, they basically uh, came out with a whole new article of the controlled uh, the CRTA, the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, over the weekend. And, well, it was passed. And then uh, so I had to digest that and create some content about it. But now there's going to uh, probably be, uh, and something you know, our guests will be talking about as well, the licensure award system in whatever particular state we're talking about. Sometimes they're competitive, other times they're lotteries, and it looks like Illinois is going to have a hybrid. Um, because like there's going to be all these people, and they get all these teams, and they get scored, and then those scores are going to have ties, and then those ties, they go to a lottery. And then there's procedures for the lottery that were revealed over the weekend. So I just sent out uh, an email uh, about that. And then also uh, tomorrow I'll be doing a uh, Chamber of Commerce meeting. The Quad Cities African-American Chamber of Commerce is having a virtual, because that's how it is, cannabis fair. Uh, and so I'll be on that. And I'll, somebody from Senator Steen's office, who's the uh, senator who proposed this new article to the, uh, the CRTA, will be there and we'll speak with her on it. But how's stuff in Washington State treating you? Washington State is interesting, man. Um, out of all the other states I've been looking at, Washington actually seems to be the most stable. So it doesn't have the tourism that Nevada has. They've been absolutely decimated. Mm -hmm. Colorado, surprisingly, I didn't realize how much tourism uh, was in Colorado. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Yeah. And so as bad as Washington is to do business, surprisingly, during um, complete economic crisis and, and pandemonium, our sales are solid. They're basically 
you know, flat. They haven't changed much. They dipped up and down, but on average, looks like they haven't changed. So I and guess syntox, syntox, sin stocks have been just booming. Uh, I hear that liquor sales is up double, double digits. Uh, Illinois is going to release their numbers here next week for how much marijuana sales, we call it cannabis here, sales they did last uh, last month. And I bet it's probably over 40 million bucks. You know, uh, people have been buying more essential goods. I think there's fewer people going out and buying, but the ones who do are buying a lot more. Um, so there's there's a few different interesting reports out there kind of showing what people are buying, obviously a lot more edibles right now. Um, but some of everything is changing, right? They're going more towards delivery if that's an option. We don't have that in Washington yet. Hopefully that gets fast tracked um, in Olympia. But what they're buying, when they're buying, how they're buying, all of that is different. Everything is changing. It's pretty crazy. Um, even with the, the panic buying, that's subsided. And now people are going more towards edibles and even comfort food, non-edibles. So if you look at just regular grocery list items, there's like a baking epidemic right now. People are just going out and baking stuff and want that comfort food. Yeah. So you can definitely see some of the shifts and waves. And I don't know what's going to be permanent or what it's going to look like, but it's changing all the time. Yeah. And then uh, Illinois is starting to open up. So like on Friday here on the 29th, uh, bars and restaurants can open, but like outside. Yeah. So as you drive around the city, you see um, bars that are closed, but they're putting up like wedding tents, you know, like big event tents. So it looks like there's just going to be a roving Oktoberfest for the summer. Yeah, I saw that there was a, a restaurant here locally where I'm at in a suburb of Seattle, and they were putting up outdoor tables with uh, kind of like plastic dividers or whatever in between people. So you weren't really sitting six feet apart from somebody, assuming that they're from the same household. But it does look like there are some companies in Seattle that are slowly opening up, according to CDC and, and the governor of Washington. If you clean everything thoroughly every day, you're allowed to open early. So there are a couple renegades out there opening up. I don't know how business is, but you know, definitely want to support those those businesses that do want to open up. I need a haircut. I know that. Yeah, you and me both, brother. <laughs> but um, you know, I'm I'm excited to talk to our uh, guest today about the Arizona cannabis laws because as COVID knocked a lot of ballot initiatives off, Arizona's had already been solidified and secured. So this fall, hopefully, Arizona's going to vote for legalizing adult use cannabis, and then our guest will be on in a few more minutes. Uh, there was another uh, piece of news that you shared from Marijuana Venture regarding the coronavirus and the pe- uh, federal federal payroll tax credit. What was that? There's a lot of uh, details in there, so maybe we can leave a link in the show notes. But basically, it's giving um, validity to the industry just by giving those tax breaks and and credits. So there's a lot of interesting things out there um, about payroll tax credits that you can get as an employer in the cannabis industry that's first of its kind. Um, But uh, yeah, as details kind of roll out, we'll we'll have to explain it as, as it moves forward. But it's fascinating to see essential business and uh, tax, federal tax credits in the cannabis industry. Well, I mean, I think the cannabis industry has paid its fair share in, can, uh, in federal taxes uh, because of IRC 280E. So I'm glad that they may get some relief, but I don't know if the Safe Banking Act is going to get out of the Senate because I'm not sure if they're going to do another stimulus package. The stock market's pretty much touching its highest level since like early March. And uh, the S&P is over 3,000, but we're going to have to wait and see how uh, Q1, or I guess we're in Q2, Q2 earnings uh, shape up. But um, I I don't think that the recession is going to be as shallow as the stock market's currently thinking it is. No, I think I think Wall Street is highly optimistic. I think people are buying the dips, um, hoping that the the bottom has been there, but we haven't reached 
really any kind of um, financial impacts or, um, you know, if you look at supply disruption, you haven't had any of that. It's just been a complete lockdown. So when people are supposed to go back to business and you have all this optimism and it doesn't turn into revenues, then that's the next wave. So we haven't even reached that point yet. But in the meantime, we're doing awesome. We had a 14.20% return last week on our AI-based cannabis index. So, 14 so how do you get in and out? I mean, like, do you just long and short that or do you just buy the cannabis index and then the robots are trading it? The robots are doing everything. And so since we can't short, you can only go one way on an index. Our AI-based cannabis index will just buy when the opportunity is right and sell when they think it's too risky to hold it any longer. And so kind of with that algorithm, we were able to pull in a 14.2% return in one week, um, taking advantages of, of the, the pop that everybody saw last week. It was pretty awesome. That's great. That's great. Well, you know, keep reporting on that. I'm sure uh, somebody wants to make some money on that. But everybody always wants to make money on stock trading algorithms. Everybody always wants to make money on stocks. Uh, and I think that's one of the downsides to the cannabis industry right now in the sense that like you have states like Florida or even Illinois has a fairly large license type that will go online next year, like the cannabis cultivation license type. So you have your Crescos and then your, your, your Cura Leafs. And then in uh, Florida, it's True Leaf. It's like 50 percent of all the sales. And so because you have these types of corporate structures, they're pretty much always raising money. Um, the one that ties Washington and Arizona is Harvest Health that just bought Have a Heart in Washington for $85 million. Uh, and there's some litigation going on right now behind the scenes. So it'll be interesting to see how that whole thing plays out. Yeah, the litigation aspect's interesting. We're working on an, uh, a business plan product at the consulting company. And I'm like, okay, well, you realize that this business plan leads them smack dab into like a PPM or like some type of securities offering, even if you have like one guy and it's going to be a convertible promissory note in theory that might count as a security, especially if it's like for, you know, $1.5 million line of credit or something. Uh, and trying to paper those deals, they're all great, you know, when you're putting them together. But then when they fall apart, that's when the lawsuits and, uh, and you know, They'll sue you, they'll sue everybody, and then they'll make sure to sue anybody who has insurance because that's where the real money is. And, Anything uh, you buy for profit is a security. So interest in thoroughbred horses is a security, according to the SEC. So you oh, really? So like if I'm going to buy a racehorse, I need to uh, have like a subscription agreement and a private placement memo and all that type of stuff or... It's one of the questions on the series seven is in it is a thoroughbred is interest in a thoroughbred horse, a security. The answer is yes, it is. Yeah, Guys, I'm so thrilled that you, you tuned into this extra special episode (laughs) of uh, cannabis legalization news where we, we we tease, uh, you know, very, very nuanced aspects of corporate securities. And uh, so I do want you guys to stick around until the end. One of the things that happened in in, uh, this week's news was I actually got, uh, I wrote this 10 years ago. This is how I met Miggy and kind of got into the industry. And then, of course, uh, like every other organ, uh, overnight success, it takes about 10 years. And um, so I've, I've ordered a whole bunch of them. And then if you hang out till the end, we'll tell you how you can win a book. And I'll, I'll mail it off to you with some boba packets. And then also, uh, I do have dube tubes around here somewhere. It's a, it's a wonderful industry to be in. But let's uh, let's talk about how we're going to start opening up a new market, an emerging market called Arizona. Bring on our guest. Tom. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Why don't you uh, explain to the audience um, who you are and and what you serve? Well, my name is Tom Dean. Uh, I'm an attorney here in Arizona. Uh, All I do is uh, cannabis related matters. Um, I kind of started doing that back in 1998 when I became the legal director for Normal. 
there at their headquarters in Washington, D.C. Um, after coming back here to Arizona, I decided all I would do uh, were marijuana-related matters, and, and uh, that's kept me pretty busy since 2010 uh, when our Medical Marijuana Act was uh, uh, introduced. And, uh, you know, we've, unlike a lot of states, haven't had a government that's been very supportive, in fact, um, outwardly hostile to it. So there's been uh, no, no uh, uh, shortage of uh, important cases to fight about here as we try to vindicate the rights of patients and caregivers yeah. here. That's great. Yeah, I always use Arizona as the example of how ballot measures or ballot initiatives can, even when they win, fail. Uh, and they can kind of create um, silly laws because sometimes the legislature, which might be more conservative than the people, don't really like being told what to do. So Arizona yeah. actually legalized medical marijuana in 1997. Only well, for you know, the same yeah. year in California. So 96 is actually when we when we passed it, November of 96, same day as California. And actually, uh I think announced it that it passed before California did. Obviously, less votes to count over here, mm-hmm. and uh, so technically speaking, we were the first uh, state for the, where the people passed a medical marijuana initiative. But as I think you were about to point out, things didn't work out very well after that. Yeah, you had to wait another ballot initiative, and in, I think two thousand two or something, or two thousand and four, and then finally in two thousand and ten, uh, the current Arizona medical cannabis wait. You said marijuana. What's the term of art in Arizona? Yeah, the term of art, a legal term of art is marijuana. And that was a a subject of a lot of confusion in a recent case called State v. Jones. But cannabis in Arizona under Arizona's criminal code is specifically defined as to include essentially uh, uh, concentrates, extracts, uh, 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 preparations of uh, the marijuana plant. So we have marijuana on the one hand, which is the physical plant, and then cannabis on the other. So it's something that's led to a lot of confusion and unfortunately to a young man spending about a year in prison uh, before ultimately prevailing in in that case I just mentioned. That's fascinating. They have two legal terms of art for the botanical plant. Uh, That would be extremely frustrating. Um, Okay. And so uh, I'm assuming that you guys have restricted hemp from the definition at least, right? Yeah, we do. We are a farm bill uh, state. So uh, we have the in, uh, an industry, hemp industry in its infancy. Unfortunately, this past year, the past harvest, we uh, lost 40 percent due to testing over the 0.3 percent THC limit. So that's uh, silliest. Like they don't give you any remediation ability. You just no. and then and no crop insurance. Just eat it. Yeah, that's unfortunately what happened to the farmers, but they're learning, you know, no, no doubt. I think they'll do better this, this next uh, harvest. Uh, yeah. But yeah, remediation techniques where you could process the oil and spin out the THC and separate it from the CBD. That's right. Or sell it to a THC company for a nice one to one ratio. Yeah. That would be great if that were allowed under Arizona's uh, hemp law, but it's not. And it's uh, uh, probably more restrictive. It was passed before the 2018 reforms on the federal side. So it was passed with the marketing uh, research, you know, uh, purpose under the original farm bill rather than the more uh, open uh, uh, kind of free market approach uh, in the 2018 amendment to it. So you so, had more the 2014 farm bill where you had to have a higher education facility that's kind of, you know, tied in the research purposes, which I've seen some research purposes that were fairly commercial, but whatever. Uh, anyway. Yeah. 
But I was yeah, going to move from because yeah. hemp is nice, but yeah. uh, cannabis is, you know, and the marijuana plant uh, in yeah. particular. How does medical marijuana work in Arizona? Vertically integrated, horizontally integrated? Um, explain the licensure. Well, it's it's a nonprofit uh, state, and it's a completely vertically integrated, uh, it, and it has been from the get go. Um, in fact, the new legalization initiative that, that I know we're going to talk about a little bit, that's also 100% vertically integrated. Uh, so we've always been vertically integrated. And it looks like for the foreseeable future, we'll be uh, vertically integrated state. So all, all we don't have a separate any we do. The only separate license you might uh, say is uh, we do have now drug testing that's being implemented this year. So there will be separate drug testing licenses. But apart from that, they're really uh, they're, they're, that's those are the only two licenses. You're either a dispensary or a testing facility. Well, so the dispensaries cultivate dispensaries, uh, cultivate, uh, you know, transport, retail, wholesale, uh, everything in between. Uh, so that's that one license we do. What we do, though, is in Arizona, a lot of uh, people refer to a, a subcontract. So, you know, uh, uh, a, a dispensary contracts with a third party to handle their cultivation. A lot of people refer to that as a sub-license. Um, it's just an, uh, not really a, uh, an official term or anything, but that's what has come to be known as. So when you have a contract to perform any, any particular function on behalf of a dispensary, which is very common in, in yep. Arizona, like it is in many nonprofit states, those are sort of like, re those are referred to as sub-licenses. And I guess, in, in a way, you can look at them that way. Um, yeah, because yeah. the industry very often cleaves itself between the production and the the retail side to for tax avoidance and strategy planning, and then also for audit defense. And so, you know, you want to have your retail outlet being your retail outlet so that you can keep the books and have it a C corp so that you can prepare for this tax audit that's coming from the trafficking. But then over when you're creating the cost of the goods sold as the farmers are doing or the, the extractors are doing, uh, those types of organizations, they can be a little bit more relaxed. I mean, C-Corp sure. still has its advantages for you know, M&A, but um, that's really interesting that the way that it developed is you get one license and then it seems like there's this it's it's not an official sub license. It's just right. a contractual relationship amongst two license holders. Yeah, rather than uh, the Department of Health, which is the agency that uh, uh, supervises the Medical Marijuana Act, rather than them having multiple licenses and, and regulating that, it's effectively left to the dispensary license holder, who then sub licenses, uh, sub contracts with a number of other uh, third party companies, which can be for profit. So they're the ones who are really managing it. So in a, in a sense, it, it kind of works because most dispensaries don't attempt to handle everything on their own. They're usually they usually are contracted with various other uh, companies who specialize in that particular aspect of, of, of you know, the, the marijuana establishment. So it kind of works out, but unfortunately, it does some, it concentrate an awful lot of power in the hands of a very few uh, in the industry. How many licenses are, 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 is there a moratorium on licenses and how much are licenses going for? Because about two years ago at MJ BizCon in Vegas, somebody was trying to offload a partial license for $5 million. I thought that was a lot. And then come and find out $20 million wasn't out of the, the, the norm for if you were in Phoenix, for example. Yeah, uh, you won't be able to do. There's nothing out there for five million anymore. Uh, that I think part of that is just in anticipation of the uh, initiative this year, the, the legalization initiative passing. You won't be able to find anything for for that cheap, believe it or not. 
Um, and uh, in, without a lot of hair on it, you know, with tax problems or lawsuits or something like that. Right now, uh, I know the cheapest dispensary license that's currently up for uh, sale is asking for $8 million, And uh, that's uh, strictly on a, it's a paper license without any, um, any operation in place yet. Just for the paper. Yeah, just for the paper. Uh, there, we have a couple licenses like that left over from the 2016 uh, uh, application process. H- haven't done anything with it, just the paper, literally. So, so no operations, no sales. That's, that's the only way in, though, because they're they're not doing any more. They're not taking any more. They're not issuing any more licenses, at least for the medical. Let's then turn to the new ballot initiative that's coming up this fall. Is it the same style of the the vertical super license? And if so, how many are going to be on the table? It's the same style. Again, there are separate testing uh, licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, all, we're also the department is uh, uh, going to issue, I believe, beginning in 2024, begin issuing uh, delivery licenses, which will be separate from uh, the, the vertically integrated marijuana establishment license. Uh, but we'll be limited in the number of licenses to the same number as are issued under the Medical Marijuana Act, with preference being given to existing dispensaries. The exception to that is there are 25 additional licenses that will be added uh, to supposedly uh, social equity licenses, although the act is very vague about who might qualify other than someone who comes from a community that was um, unfairly impacted by marijuana prohibition in the past. I guess the department department, Department of Health, the same agency that's uh, regulating the uh, medical industry will uh, regulate under legalization, and they'll have to decide how to uh, determine who those sexual s- social equity licenses are going to be issued to. But other than that, other than those 25, it'll really be just the dispensaries in existence uh, presently under the Medical Act who will uh, be eligible for the recreational dispensary license. Now, having said that, there are the department does owe us a few new medical licenses, probably maybe in the order of uh, eight. Right now, it, 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 we're tied to 10% of the registered pharmacies in the state of Arizona. That's the limit on the number of dispensaries that we can have. So as the dispensary number of registered dispensaries slowly increases, so does the number of licenses that the department has to allow. Um, they don't. We, we pick up maybe one or two a year. So the department's not going to do a whole application process for one or two a year. But after a few years, I don't know when, hopefully soon, they might when they accumulate maybe a dozen, which shouldn't take that much longer, maybe a new application process. And those will go out. uh, Anyone will be eligible to apply for those. For the medical, though, but not for the adult use. Well, if they can apply for the medical, then they would also then be eligible to apply for the adult use because the adult use number is also restricted to uh, 10% of the registered pharmacies. That's a very fascinating nuance that's uh, kind of unique to Arizona that – because Josh and Miggy will complain about how medical kind of got axed in Washington state, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I I think there's only a couple of stores that even have um, a medical program. Obviously you can get, I think 10% off anywhere, but in terms of like a specific medical uh, store, we don't have any of that in Washington anymore. Is there any advantage in Washington to being a patient over just an adult? No, but we don't have any, uh, you can't cultivate at home. 
And so the 10% off uh, is supposed to help with taxes, but no, outside of that, we don't even have a caregiver, so you can't really- I thought, that, I, I thought Washington did have home cultivation for medical patients, but maybe I could be wrong, yeah. Um, it used to be that you could have 15 plants and grow from home. Um, so I, actually, I'm sorry, uh, you can for medical. You can't have any co-op. It used to be that you have three licenses, 15 each. So that's been to the wayside, but we don't have a, a, a grow from home for uh, recreational. Hmm. But I don't, I don't know anybody who even has a medical card anymore. I don't even know where you would go to get one. Oh, wow. Even the medical uh, store in Tacoma, this little farmer's market was shut down. They've come back. I haven't gone back um, just because I don't want to get caught up in, a, in another sting operation. <laughs> Yeah, that's fascinating, though. Illinois has done somewhat like what Arizona as Arizona is contemplating in the sense that everybody who had a medical card was really they were grandfathered in. They were essentially insured another dispensary or they'd have their same dispensary. It's just that now it has two lines. Here's the adult use. Here's the medical. But then they also got in another one. And so uh, there's a, some renovations going on at a building uh, in town here. And it looks like they are taking it and they're making a, a big dispensary as if they contemplate uh, it not just being a dispensary, it being a dispensary that you then go and hang out and smoke and enjoy life, you know, like a normal person. Yeah. So, Tom, I noticed that 90 uh, percent of the people who have medical cards in Arizona have chronic pain and only a half of a percent have uh, a card for seizures. Is it? Is that more recreational? Uh, it, it, to me, chronic pain is kind of this blanket term you can go in and do you need a lot of uh, medical information in order to get a card or can you just go in and say I have chronic pain and, and get your medical card? Well, I mean, we have a short list, uh, you know, unlike California, uh, there's a very short list of conditions, most of them very specific, uh, wasting syndrome, Crohn's disease, glaucoma, uh, 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 Alzheimer's. Um, probably the, the second broadest category after uh, chronic pain would be PTSD, but our PTSD, it's restrictive in that it requires that the individual also be undergoing conventional treatment. Um, oh. that's, that kind of limits people's interest in obtaining their card for PTSD reasons. So um, chronic pain. 1.1% for PTSD, according to the Arizona Department of Health. Mm-hmm. I think certainly there'd be a lot more that would qualify for PTSD, but maybe qualify for another condition, probably chronic pain and better to have your card for chronic pain so that you're not burdened by that other requirement that you prove that you're undergoing conventional treatment. Um, And I think that, you know, the way I look at it is, well, it works really well for chronic pain. Um, It happens to work for other things too, but the broadest category is probably chronic pain. I don't look at that as sort of an excuse for recreational. It's just, it really, really works. And that's why we see uh, such a profound reduction in opioid abuse in states that allow uh, uh, for cannabis medical or recreational, because I think it it really works well for people and it helps them avoid more uh, problematic substances. Yeah, alcohol use tends to slightly decline as well because mm-hmm. people are using a substitute good instead of a, you know, that shot of whiskey. Uh, interesting, interesting. So let's gonna let's then talk about how the application process because it appears that there's just one uh, adult use license and just one medical license in Arizona. 
What types of steps do you have to go through to qualify or to apply for uh, an Arizona cannabis business license? Well, right now, you know, we don't have any applicant. You can't apply right now. Uh, when that does come back around, the answer to that question is uh, it's un it's uncertain because uh, we have uh, had the first application process in 2012 was basically a lottery. You met certain uh, certain requirements and then you're tossed into a lottery, basically. The second time around, it really wasn't a lot lottery. It was whoever picked the location, proposed location that that turned out to have the most patients in a 10 mile radius. They they won, uh, which is very different. This next round could be the same or it could come up with some different formula. It's uh, impossible to tell at this time. So how you apply uh, it, it, for this next round, it's unknown. Especially with the social equity applicant principles of it, because that makes it, well, again, if you have that social equity member on your team, you do, or if you don't, you don't. And that might allow you to be entered into a lottery. Illinois kind of pivoted and like they just created a lottery and they added it to the law. And so I'm, and I think the reason for that was because they are trying to avoid lawsuits uh, as they had 700 applications for 75 dispensary licenses, but they applied 4,000 times because they're trying to hack the system and where the location's going to be. So they have to judge these 4,000 applications and certainly there's going to be a lot of ties. And so then when there is a tie, then they'll have a lottery. So now it looks like it's similar to the sense of Arizona where you have to meet this criteria, but that criteria might have to be an exceedingly high score. And then you're placed into a lottery because you've tied with uh, people and there might be more ties than there are available seats. And so then they just start picking numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. I think I don't like that system. I like it in the sense that it gives maybe people who are um, uh, maybe less qualified, uh, less financially backed an opportunity to get into the industry. So it seems like it's maybe more uh, equitable in, the, in that sense. But on the other hand, uh, it doesn't necessarily result with the best, best candidates. And if what we're trying to do is service the consumer, then you would think that it shouldn't be left to lottery. It should be left to uh, uh, a choice of, of who would make the best uh, product. But both, there's pros and cons, I think, to both approaches. Um, but, yeah, the uh, cost is an interesting one. And then the cost from like, you know, we're, we're lawyers. And so we probably shouldn't uh, to speak ill of litigation. But, uh, you know, a lot of it can be chicanery. A yeah. lot of it. And uh, being on the business side now, I'm like, well, this is a lot more practical. But anyway, uh, the whole point of having that type of lottery based system is just so much more difficult to appeal because if it is, quote unquote, merit based in the score and the score is done by like KPMG in the state of Illinois. So you have a big four accounting firm that, you know, their uh, rubric that they made up, that is indicative of how good the person's going to perform. Really? Uh, I don't know about that. And then I also don't know what that rubric is. So uh, maybe that's, you know, if that score is somewhat of a standardization. And so then after you have that standardization, if you have more people who fit the criteria than available licenses, how do you justly award right. those and avoid litigation risk? Because if you start giving them to, you know, political friends and favors, and then somebody like me will say, all right, well, let's go to the administrative review section of the Illinois law. We'll sue him. We'll sue him. And then we serve discovery on KPMG and we get to the bottom of how this algorithm works. You're right. It definitely makes it easy, easier for the government to avoid litigation that way because they can kind of throw their hands up and say what it was a lottery. We even saw, though, 
in the 11th hour before the initial uh, dispensary applications were were selected that people were being knocked out for really very technical reasons or reasons which weren't even true, uh, uh, just knocked out in the 11th hour of the lottery until there was like, and that would happen where there'd be only, you know, one person stand, one applicant standing in that particular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the lottery. Cause we had a number of, we had, we had a whole bunch of different little lotteries because it was done by certain z- districts in the state. So 131 districts in the state uh, that each had their own separate lottery. So, uh, somehow people are getting knocked out for reasons that didn't appear to be valid in the very, I mean, 11th hour, I mean, like a day or two before the lottery without any opportunity to try to correct or anything like that. So no administrative did, review. Yeah, no administrative review too late. Uh, fine. You could, you sure you could file administrative review. Sure. You could do that, but the licenses were already issued. Good luck. Uh, nobody, nobody prevailed in any lawsuit. Did, um, did the you guys have licenses in the tank? Like Illinois has a set number yeah. of licenses and they're giving away this much. So it's like, hey, they haven't spoken about like 200 of those licenses over there. Let's sue them and try to get one. Well, I like that. I mean, that would make sense. So if somebody did, you know, make a successful challenge that they have another license to peel off and give to them. But, you know, that's not the case in Arizona. I mean, we do have some in the tank right now, obviously, as the number of pharmacies increases in Arizona, so do the number of licenses licenses that are supposed to be issued. But other than that, no, we didn't hold back. I like the idea of holding back because, you know, um, I think there were some people who unfairly were precluded from the initial selection process here in Arizona. But like you said, chicanery. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, co-host of the show, Miggy's watching. He asks, uh, will Arizona be vertically integrated? Uh, yeah, well, it is. It is yeah. vertically integrated now. It will be vertically integrated under the if we pass, and I think we will in this year, November, uh, recreational. It'll also be vertically integrated. So, How do you allocate then your capital? Because if it's going to be a vertically integrated license, but then you describe this issue of a sub-license. So if I'm just going to be getting my license so that I can uh, handle retail, my overhead is substantially lower than if I'm going to be getting my license to, because I have seen some amazing uh, greenhouses out of Arizona, just huge greenhouse mm-hmm. in Arizona. That costs way more to set up than um, a retail outlet that's 2,000 square feet. Right. Yeah. The way, you know, the, the, the contracts have kind of gone through different permutations. Um, uh, right now, it seems like the preferred structure of contract for a sub-license is to have the person, the, 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 the sub-licensee, the third-party company, pay a set amount to kind of lease that license. The, the, for example, you have a grower come in, he pays maybe $30,000 a month, $40,000 a month directly to the dispensary license holder for the privilege of growing under that license. And then everything that that grower produces that's sold, either wholesale or retail, the revenue then goes to the grower. So, um, you know, that's, uh, it makes it easier for the, the license holder. They know exactly how much money they're going to get every month. Uh, they don't have to deal with divvying anything up. So they decide how much they want per month. And then the rest from the sales go, goes back to the grower. That's sort of the preferred uh, contract model right now. Which state do you think Arizona is going to be more like being vertically integrated? Do you think they're going to be, uh, you know, when it's when it's fully recreation, do you think that Arizona is going to grow up and be like Colorado 
<laughs> what state do you think that Arizona has the potential to emulate? It's interesting. You know, uh, we certainly have probably more in common with Texas to the east than we do to with our uh, western and northern neighbors in terms of culturally. Uh, uh, but we're, we're moving more and more towards being more similar, I think, to Colorado is uh, where I see us moving uh, in that direction. Still a good, a, a good bit of sales. Say again. Does that include a billion dollars in, uh, in, in tax revenue? Uh, well, I don't. I, I wasn't really speaking to tax revenue. I was just, you know, sort of speaking to what direction do we think we're going to go? And how, right now, I know that the government certainly doesn't really want to go in the direction that they see California, Oregon, Nevada, or Colorado going. At least the, most of the people in government. Um, I think that the the voters. You know, we have a little bit of a disconnect right now between the the, the values of the voters and the values of the uh, their elected officials. But I think that they're more interested in moving. Uh, in the direction of uh, probably not California, but more of a Colorado type model where you've got uh, a good deal of um, a liberal social, you know, a, a, more, a more liberal social mindset, but also um, with a libertarian kind of limited government sort of approach. And I'll be, that'll be reflected, I believe, in the, in the way that they treat cannabis. Uh, so um, we're watching everybody. Uh, we're trying to watch what other states have done, the mistakes that they've made, uh, and try to avoid that. I know that uh, we're fortunate in that we've come to the, the game. We've, we've been much more gradual, you know, in our reform here in Arizona than maybe in some other states. So uh, we get to look at uh, the examples of other states to try to not make those same mistakes. I personally wish that we weren't a vertically integrated state. I think it's better, my personal opinion, to have separate licenses broken out. Uh, I think it allows for more uh, participation in the industry. I think that's always good. But as I said, with what we call sub-licenses, we kind of get there anyhow. Yes, but then it's how do you get the initial license? And that was something that I recall reading in the bill, because the bill's out there. I and mean, I don't think they call it a bill. I think they call it a ballot initiative, technically. Yeah. But uh, it did speak of an application window starting in January. Do you think that's uh, overly optimistic? If it's passed in, in uh, November, how much government uh, cooperation from the agencies is required to be able to orchestrate a two-month turnaround for an application window, especially during the holiday season? Yeah. Well, uh, it's the same agency going to be handling these applications as handled. Uh, it, it regulates the medical marijuana industry. Um, they've been, uh, I think, pretty well brought to heel by the by the industry over the last 10 years. So um, I'm, I, 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 that does seem ambitious to me, uh, but I think that uh, they're probably already thought it through very carefully. Uh, again, the same, it is the same uh, agency that's already done two rounds of applications in the medical side. So probably have a lot less problem than, than we would have if we were in a situation like some States and we created a new agency or, or located recreational in a different agency. So uh, it might be a little optimistic. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little extension on that into the spring, but uh, we'll see what happens. Tom, Dean, what's your opinion about, like from an investor standpoint, for the investors that are listening, why, in, from your, your standpoint, your opinion, why would an investor go into Arizona and spend the money on a license and establish a, a new property, plant, and equipment, 
you know, standard operating procedures and start from scratch versus coming to Washington, for example, buying a license for 25,000 with existing SOPs. What, what's the advantages of going to Arizona at this point? Well, you've got, uh, if, you're, if you're after a license, you've got a very limited pool of license holders. I mean, if you actually looked at the ownership, when we, when we talk about there being 120 some licenses right now, um, if you look at it in terms of ownership, uh, there's a, a lot fewer actual owners. You've got Harvest in here, um, uh, other, other big players. Uh, MedMan recently kind of divested themselves uh, as they had uh, I think expanded a little bit too soon, couldn't handle their growth. And so one of, some of the licenses they cut were here in Arizona. But I think the advantage is you have a, a limited pool of uh, owners and uh, you've got a vertically integrated license. So you really control the whole thing and you're able to compete uh, for dominance in a relatively small market. So it makes it easier, I think. And we're more set up for that kind of big cannabis uh, model that everyone seems in the industry agrees. I think, you know, things seem to be going in that direction, like a big tobacco or, or, or whatever. Uh, it's sort of accelerated because of the way we're doing things here in Arizona. It's kind of accelerated. And I think that's what makes it attractive. And our market, even though Arizona is not as big a market as California, uh, we have right now about a quarter of a million patients and if that's any indicator of the number of adults over 21 that would be interested in being recreational consumers, uh, I think, you know, we stand to, at this point, um, you know, dramatically uh, triple, quadruple sales very quickly should recreational pass. So I think that's what makes it attractive. Yeah, I believe there's like uh, seven to eight million people in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a lot. It's um, more than Colorado. It's more than Washington State. Uh, and then you guys have tourism as well. So Colorado mm -hmm. is a lot of tourism. Uh, that's one thing that I'm interested in now, you know, that's the business proposition. If you get this vertical license, how many retail outlets can I open? How many, uh, how much, what's my canopy space? All right. So you can have the one vertical license, uh, uh, retail, uh, uh, point can't have, you cannot have multiple retail locations. Oh, you can't, you can have, you don't have to have your grow though. Obviously at the recreation, at the retail site, you can have your grow offsite, uh, it's some other part of the state where it's, you know, the, the, the square footage is cheaper. And uh, so one, only one distribution point, but you can deliver. And uh, uh, so that makes that opens up the market. But, you know, we went through this with medical. What, what you're not going to be able to do is, is have kind of a, a, a distribution hub, as they were being referred to, where you deposit inventory in another part of the state and then attempt to sell through that delivery hub or distribution hub, um, nor can you have sort of a roving, what they call a roving inventory. So you have a van with 20 pounds in it and it drives around in parts of the state and waits to get an order and goes and delivers it. You can't do that either. You have the one retail spot. That makes it challenging, but you can wholesale your product anywhere in the state. So um, there are a lot of dispensaries that really don't have much of a grow of their own. So they, they rely extensively or even in some cases completely on purchasing from other dispensaries who, who are growing. So you do have the opportunity to brand. And if you can get that brand out there, then it's going to be in demand and you're going to be able to get that circulated through wholesale to other dispensaries throughout the state. That's random right. question for you guys. Have you guys ever seen a bill or any any talks in general about vending machines? I know in Washington we kind of talked about it, uh, but there was too too many issues surrounding it with ID and everything else. Even though some of these uh, scanners can read IDs uh, and medical scripts, have you seen anything about 
vending machines being an opportunity? Uh, not not legally. I mean, we had some vending machines they tried out in, in, in what we were calling compassion clubs that ultimately were deemed to be unlawful. These were uh, car, patient and caregiver operated uh, businesses without a, a, a formal dispensary license. Um, they were trying that kind of thing out at their facilities. But when they got shut down, the whole vending machine thing kind of fell by the wayside. So I don't uh, I don't we don't have anything pending right now as far as laws or regulations that would permit that. Um, I don't I think there's anything on the near in the near future on the horizon either. But uh, I, I like the idea of any machine, but we're a little ways away, I think, from embracing that here in Arizona. Chicago would be a good place to start that. Chicago yeah. wouldn't be bad, but I'm more excited about our social use cafes. What type of social use cafes? Is there anything like that built into the, the new Arizona cannabis legalization uh, uh, ballot initiative? Yeah, um, I think we are right now in medical. Technically, you could have a social use. It's, it's, it's a little complicated in the way that you have to set it up, but certainly it can be done. I think that's going to become much easier under the recreational. So we will see, I think, some um, uh, social clubs or lounges that, that open up here in Arizona uh, in, in, after we pass this in November. So that's something I know that, you know, you can't really be Amsterdam unless, you know, you have a place where you can go and, and hang out at a coffee shop or whatever. So I think that's um, that's certain in many states. That's the final, uh, I think, piece of the puzzle that really needs to be we really need to be implemented if we're really going to achieve true uh, full legalization. Um, if yeah. we want to leave Amsterdam as, as sort of our aspirations. Well, how okay? So it's a vertically integrated license. So you have to get this license if you want a dispensary. How many of these licenses are currently available? And then we already know there's 25 that will be coming online with the legalization uh, mm -hmm. movement this fall in that election. So how many how many operators are currently there? My guess is we have probably eight licenses that the department needs to issue. I don't think it'll do that. I, they're they're waiting for a, a better critical mass, if you will, maybe a dozen or fifteen before they probably open it up. It's expensive and, and, and you know uh, disruptive to do an application process, so they want to have at least several uh, uh, be, to, to, before they go to that trouble. I think, but I believe we have maybe around eight in the wings. Um, there's a twenty-five uh, that will be coming uh, with the recreational for social equity, and as far as as far as licenses available for sale, um, uh, how many operators are currently there? How many people about, currently have the can? How many dispensaries are in Arizona? Yeah, we've got about 125 that are currently operating right now. Um, uh, I think we should have, like I said, more like 100 and probably probably 10 more than that. Um, there should be right now currently 131, but we have several that aren't in operation. And then on top of that, another eight. So I think we're getting close. If you count, if you count those in, we're getting close to the department announcing a new application procedure. That might happen next year. I think they want to probably get through this first, probably issue the license recreationally, uh, which will happen next year, maybe later in the year, do some additional medical, or maybe the following year in 2021. Uh, but we're getting close, I think, to when the department decides to do that again. So it does look like uh, by the end of 2021, there could be. Uh, approximately 150 to 175 cannabis dispensaries in Arizona serving mm -hmm. about seven to eight million people. I don't know, Josh, what do you think? Is a, less than 200 retail outlets enough for seven or eight million people? Or 
No, it's not a lot, but I do like the monopoly aspect. It sounds a lot like Nevada, and they've had phenomenal numbers pre pre uh, crisis. Um, they de- they depend heavily on tourism, but that monopolistic aspect is uh, is a good return for investors. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, from an investor standpoint, that's what I that's what I agree that that that's what makes Arizona licenses attractive. Yeah, but then you get into greed. It should be okay because Vancouver, BC has got the similar issue, right? And um, Ontario as well. They've got, yeah. compared to Oregon or Colorado with 184 stores per million people in Colorado, I think BC has just a fraction of that. Um, I think there's, um, I don't want to say any numbers, but maybe like 40 stores or something stupid. So as long as they have delivery and they can get to people, that shouldn't be an issue. But well, is delivery yeah. uh, delivery is not yet there, but delivery is contemplated in the new law, right? It is. Yeah. They, they In fact, there will be a separate delivery license that they're talking about issuing. I believe it's 2024 before those those are rolled out. Um, but I'll tell you to play devil's advocate uh, certainly is attractive from an investor standpoint, but it is the probably the the number one um, uh, issue that uh, the con- cannabis consuming community has with uh, the the initiative, uh, like they did with the 2016 initiative, is just it, it closes out uh, every you know everyone from being able to have an opportunity to participate in the industry in, a, in a, even in a small way, unless you can get one of these contracts with a dispensary. I know that that's uh, been the biggest problem that the industry's had in, in in trying to get the consumers on board. They lost the consumers back in 2016, and uh, that's what uh, I I think most people would agree why that initiative failed. Um, this year, uh, they listened to the consuming community. We made certain demands um, uh, for, we said, basically, listen, if you want the monopoly to stay in place, we'll agree to that, but you've got to make significant uh, 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 reform, uh, implement significant reform, uh, allowing home grow, you know, uh, 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 reducing criminal penalties, um, protecting from DUI, parental rights, that sort of thing. If you give us all of that, which they didn't in 2016, then uh, essentially the, the, the deal was we'll support your monopoly. But that doesn't mean we have to be stuck with this uh, monopoly forever. In fact, uh, there's an organization in Arizona called Safer Arizona. They attempted unsuccessfully uh, basically an unfunded campaign in uh, 2018, collected about half the number of signatures that they needed, uh, didn't make it on the ballot. But uh, they're, they've already announced in 2024 wanting to um, introduce a new initiative that would dramatically increase the number of licenses and make even deeper um, cuts into the, the the marijuana prohibition in the form of criminal justice reform primarily. So, um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, that's unrealistic. Uh, once the dispensary, once the, these recreational licenses go out, the dispensary industry becomes so powerful, uh, you're never going to get anything passed on the ballot. But, you know, I think their strategy is, well, there's still a lot of outside players that maybe would like to participate in Arizona's market, but aren't wanting to spend $20 million to buy a license. Uh, well, so you think that, okay, so monopolistic, we've agreed on that. Uh, and then $20 million on that license, mm-hmm. How? because that's going to be something that in your application, you're going to have to kind of show that you have adequate capitalization. Yeah. And so like how much does it cost is always something that I have to explain to my clients. And it, then it depends on the type of license that is in yeah. question and then, and then also the location where they're at. And so this sounds like even though you're going to try to maybe get some contracts and outsource the growing so that you're just retailing, 
you need serious money, like yeah. $10 million yeah. ballpark money. Yeah, you really do. Um, yeah. I mean, certainly the, for the whole, the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it, it's ex- just to create what this, the scale of growth that they're going to need to service the community um, you know, the recreational community, um, you know, what, three, $4 million just to build an adequate grow uh, to, to produce, uh, to meet the demands of the market. Otherwise we end up in a situation like Nevada, right? Didn't they kind of end up in a, in a situation where they had a shortage of supply? Well, um, we have a shortage of supply in Illinois right now, but okay. our, our regs are kind of nuts in the sense that I, maybe some of the operators are starting to experiment with light depth greenhouses. But uh, in Arizona, where you guys got that hot sun and you could just build it for days in a, in a greenhouse, uh, yeah. I'd be interested to see uh, the greenhouse product that comes out of Arizona. Yeah, the preferred climate seems to be about halfway up the state. You get a little bit higher in elevation. Um, the favorite places up there were like Chino Valley, for example. A lot of growers prefer that. So they don't have to have it's not as expensive to climate control. It gets obviously pretty hot down here in Phoenix and it gets pretty cold up in Flagstaff. So uh, right, right about in between halfway up the Mogollon Rim, what we call the Mogollon Rim, which reaches up to the Colorado Plateau. And after that, everything's 5000 feet or higher. Um, but just below that is a kind of a sweet spot in Arizona where a lot of people uh, prefer to grow. So, uh, and, and we don't have much in the way of outdoor growing, but that's starting to become a thing too in, in Arizona. Hmm. Yeah. You have, you have to worry about pollen less if you actually have it in a greenhouse, but, uh, I would be interested in, in getting some real estate quotes for that particular area, area in Arizona right now. Yeah. So, uh, if anybody has a REIT, let me know. We can go make some purchases. Yeah. Right. Tom, Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we find Absolutely. or follow you if we have any more questions about Arizona? Well, you can you can check me out on my website, site, which is attorneyforcannabis.com, all spelled out, attorneyforcannabis.com. Uh, you can also, I do a lot uh, of educational stuff through an organization I mentioned earlier, uh, has, it, has its eye on 2024, called Safer Arizona. Uh, Safer Arizona uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can find them. They're broadcast primarily on Facebook. So uh, uh, that's a place you can you can check out me talking about future as things develop here in Arizona. We do shows on a regular basis and uh, you can reach me if you have any issues. I do a lot of criminal defense, so I don't only work in the uh, uh, business side, but I have a long career in criminal defense. Uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, go astray of the laws and regulations here in Arizona, and they end up in our brutal criminal justice system, which is you know, perhaps the worst in the country when it comes to marijuana crimes. Uh, you can give me a call at 602-635-4990, 602-635-4990. So whether you're planning or whether you've un- unfortunately found yourself on the wrong end of the law, uh, give me a call. I can help you well, with whatever your issue is. Awesome. Thank you. And Josh, thanks for stepping in for Miggy. Where can we find, follow, or listen to you? Uh, anywhere the podcast is at, The Talking Hedge. You can tell Alexa, play The Talking Hedge. All right. Awesome. And then Tom, we're giving away some books. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I, I say we use the email uh, uh, lower third. Yeah. So email me at Tom at collateralbase.com. First person, email me. Uh, and of course, when you do email me, don't just say, I want a book or I want Bovita Packs. Please mail these books and Boveda packs too, and then give your address. Because otherwise, I'm like, come on, man. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for right. Legalization News. 
We Thank will have links in the bio. Of course, yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll see you on Sunday. All right, Josh, Tom, take it easy, guys. Thanks, man. And we're back in the green room. Well, the still still say live. Still says live. Lauren, did you not end it? 